0: I shall tell you how the keys of the kingdom operate, including from whence they came, where they now vest, and what their future is. The divine account begins in the spring of 1829. It is the Ides of the memorable month of May. The Lord's prophet is now in the 24th year of his mortal probation. He is dictating Holy Scripture to his amanuensis. The Holy Word speaks of baptism, without which a man can neither see nor enter the kingdom of heaven. The Spirit of the Lord rests upon the seer and upon his scribe. They desire baptism as starving souls cry out for food. A divine providence guides them to a secluded place on the banks of the Susquehanna River near Harmony, Pennsylvania. There they pour out their souls to that God who commanded his own stainless son to be baptized as a pattern for all men. Then comes the miracle. The heavens are rent, an angel comes down from celestial heights to commune with his fellow servants in mortality. It is the resurrected John, whom Antipas beheaded more than 1,800 years before in the foul dungeons of Machaerus, It is that John, the only child of a priestly Zacharias and a sainted Elizabeth, who had himself been ordained by an angel when but eight days of age, to overthrow the kingdom of the Jews. It is that John to whom the Judean hosts came at Bethabara seeking the cleansing power of his baptism. Then it was that the beloved Baptist, to fulfill all righteousness, immersed the very Son of God himself in the murky waters of a miserable Palestinian river. It is that John for whom the heavens opened and who saw the Holy Ghost descend in bodily form in quiet serenity like a dove and rest upon the one of whom the divine voice then said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now in resurrected glory, speaking in the name of that Messiah for whom he had died a martyr's death, he confers upon his mortal friends the priesthood of Aaron and the keys of the ministering of angels, and of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. Now, for the first time in nearly 1,700 years, there are mortal men on earth who can stand in the place of the Lord in administering salvation to men. The hour is at hand when the gloom of sullen darkness will be pierced and the light of heaven again shine forth on our benighted planet. But this is only the beginning of the grand design. Messengers come again from the realms of light and glory. Peter, James, and John, who held in their day that priesthood and those keys which always appertain to the presidency of the earthly kingdom, come to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. These ancient apostles, the friends and confidants of the Lord Jesus in mortality, these saintly souls who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, these living witnesses of the one who had died that all might live, then do a wondrous thing. They confer upon the modern prophet and his associate the priesthood which is after the order of the Son of God, who abideth a priest forever. This priesthood of Melchizedek is the highest and holiest order given to mortals now or ever. It includes now and has always included the power and authority of the holy apostleship. With it, the struggling mortals who will soon, by divine command, organize anew the church and kingdom of God on earth, receive certain keys of almost infinite import. They receive the keys of the kingdom by virtue of which they are empowered to organize, preside over, govern, and regulate the kingdom of God on earth, which is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They also receive the keys of the dispensation of the fullness of times, that glorious age of restoration and refreshment in which God designs to gather all things in one in Christ, that age of revelation and gifts and miracles in which he will bring to pass the restitution of all things spoken by the mouths of all the holy prophets since the world began. Being thus commissioned and having thus the gospel of salvation mortal men can set up anew God's kingdom on earth and can preach again the gospel in all the world and to every people. The kingdom is then established on the sixth day of April in 1830, since which time every faithful member has devoted his time, talents, and means to spread the truth to our Father's other children. But even this is not all. Yet other keys must be forthcoming. On a wondrous day in April of 1836, Moses and Elijah and Elias each come bringing from their dispensations the keys and powers they had exercised as mortals. It is a day akin to that wondrous day 1,800 years before on the Mount of Transfiguration. Then it was on the snowy mountain heights, after the Father had spoken from the cloud, that Moses and Elijah, both taken to heaven without tasting death, had come in their corporeal bodies to a temple not made with hands and given for that day and time their keys and powers to Peter, James, and John. And so it is now with those same ancient worthies They come again in our day, this time in a temple built by the tithing and the sacrifice of the saints. Those same ancient prophets, now ministering in resurrected glory, restore their keys and powers. Moses, who in the majesty of the Melchizedek priesthood led enslaved Israel out of Egyptian bondage into their promised Palestine, brings back those very keys. These keys empower mortals to gather the lost sheep of Israel from the Egypt of the world and bring them to their promised Zion where the scales of enslaving darkness will drop from their eyes. These keys empower those who hold them to lead all Israel, the ten tribes included, from all the nations of the earth coming, as the prophetic word affirms, one by one and two by two to the mountains of the Lord's houses, there to be endowed with power from on high. The man Elias brings back the gospel of Abraham, the great Abrahamic covenant, whereby the faithful receive promises of eternal increase, promises that through celestial marriage Their eternal posterity shall be as numerous as the sands upon the seashore or as the stars in heaven for multitude. Elias gives the promise, received of old by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that in modern men and in their seed, all generations shall be blessed. And we are now offering the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob To all who will receive them. Elijah brings back the keys of the sealing power, the power that enables men now living, as it was with Peter of old, to bind on the earth below and have their acts sealed everlastingly in the heavens above. Because Elijah came, the baptisms we perform on earth will have efficacy, virtue, and force in eternity. In literal reality, they give us membership in the earthly kingdom, which is the church, and in the heavenly kingdom, which is the celestial realm, where God and Christ are. And so in process of time, there is a whole and complete and perfect union and welding together of dispensations and keys and powers and glories from the day of Adam, even to the present time. In the meridian of time, Jesus ordained the 12 in the coasts of Capernaum. He gave the keys of the kingdom to Peter, James, and John on the Holy Mount. And later he gave these same keys to all of the 12. In our dispensation, the Melchizedek priesthood came in 1829. Men were ordained to the Holy Apostleship in February of 1835. Various keys were given at divers times, chiefly on April 3, 1836. And this continued until all the rivers of the past had flown into the ocean of the present, and mortal men possessed all of the keys and powers ever vested in men in any age from Adam to the present. By way of climax, all of the keys of the kingdom are now given to the twelve in the winter of 1844. They then receive what the revelations call the fullness of the priesthood, together with the power to confer that eternal fullness upon others. After they are thus endowed and empowered, the prophet says to the twelve, I have sealed upon your heads all of the keys of the kingdom of God. I have sealed upon you every key, power, and principle that the God of heaven has revealed to me. Now, no matter where I may go or what I may do, the kingdom rests upon you. But, ye apostles of the Lamb of God, my brethren, upon your shoulders this kingdom rests. Now you have got to round up your shoulders and bear off the kingdom. If you do not do it, you will be damned. And thus is fulfilled the divine word in which the Lord had said aforetime to the twelve. For unto you the twelve and those the first presidency, who are appointed with you to be your counselors and your leaders, is the power of this priesthood given for the last days and for the last time, in the which is the dispensation of the fullness of times. Which power you hold in connection with all those who have received a dispensation at any time from the beginning of the creation. For verily I say unto you, The keys of the dispensation which ye have received have come down from the fathers, and last of all, being sent down from heaven unto you. And thus also is established the Lord's system for succession in the presidency. The keys of the kingdom of God, the right and power of eternal presidency by which the earthly kingdom is governed, These keys, having first been revealed from heaven, are given by the spirit of revelation to each man who is both ordained an apostle and set apart as a member of the Council of the Twelve. But since keys are the right of presidency, they can only be exercised in their fullness by one man on earth at a time. He is always the senior apostle the presiding apostle, the presiding high priest, the presiding elder. He alone can give direction to all others, direction from which none is exempt. Thus the keys, though vested in all of the twelve, are used by any one of them to a limited degree only, unless and until one of them attains that seniority which makes him the Lord's anointed on earth. It follows that when Joseph Smith, sent to a martyr's death by evil and murderous men, gasps his last breath, Brigham Young, being the next senior officer in the earthly kingdom, automatically becomes its presiding officer. The next breath drawn by Brother Brigham is the breath of power filling the lungs of the Lord's previously anointed servant. There is not so long a time as the twinkling of an eye when the Church is without a presiding officer. When President Kimball is called home to report the labors of an oh-so-grand and successful ministry, the keys will pass in an instant suddenly to another apostle of the Lord's choosing. And thus this system of divine succession will continue until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the clouds of glory to reign personally upon the earth. We need not fear for the future. This is the Lord's work. It is his kingdom, and he governs its affairs as he chooses. The keys, having been committed to man on earth, are now vested in those of his own choosing. And as the Lord lives and as Christ is true, and as truth will prevail. I testify that this work shall roll forward until it fills the whole earth, and until the knowledge of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now this testimony I bear for myself, and for all the faithful elders of the kingdom, and for all the sainted sisters who stand so valiantly at their sides. And above all, I do it in the sacred and holy name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even so, amen.
1: My brothers and sisters, I am very grateful to be here this afternoon. And I want to begin my talk by bearing testimony to you of the truthfulness of this work. I know that God lives, and that Jesus is the Christ, and that this is their work. I know that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God, and that Spencer W. Kimball is a prophet of God today. I'd like to share an experience or two with you. When I was growing up, Heber J. Grant was the president of the Church. My father always prayed for President Grant, and he had great personal feeling for him because President Grant at one time was president of the Twila Stake, and my father at that time was president of the Twila Stake. President Grant became ill and passed away. And I can remember after the funeral kneeling in family prayer as a young boy and hearing my father praying with the same love and devotion and feeling for the next prophet, the next president of the Church, George Albert Smith. And as a youth, I almost i was surprised because I'd never heard anybody pray for anyone else before than Heber J. Grant. And I felt almost a little cheated, like my father was turning away from a good friend, but uh, as the time went on, through that experience and other experiences, he taught me a very valuable lesson, and that was that he had great love and appreciation for President Grant, and that would never change. But in his heart, I realized that he had saved his greatest love and his greatest loyalty for His God, and who God would send He would sustain and uphold and pray for and embrace. Not very long ago, my family and I had the opportunity to preside over the Sydney-Australia Mission. I'd come out of the missionary department. and. I suppose my missionary views were very conservative. At any rate, as we began our work in the Sydney Mission, we had some modest but good successes and I felt comfortable about about what we were doing. Until President Kimball came to see us and in his own Manner and in his own way, he said, uh, Brother Dunn, Lauren, (laughs) he said, We all must lengthen our stride. And I got the message. And the message was that although we had made progress before the Lord and before the prophet, it wasn't enough. We went back. We redoubled our efforts. We found increased growth, but also we found increased strength. And new stakes evolved because of those efforts. I don't think so much because of us, but because of our desire to follow the prophet. I was talking to a priesthood leader just last weekend. and. We'd finished our Saturday night leadership meeting, which was on missionary work, and he said to me, you know, you're really a missionary general authority. And I said, now, wait a minute. I'm not a missionary general authority. If I can be remembered for anything, and I hope that I can among some some people, somewhere—I would settle for that which my father taught me and for which I feel he's known, and that is one who is willing to give allegiance to and follow a prophet of God. And if that can be my lot then I, can, I feel that I will have accomplished the thing the Lord has sent me to do. It's not the program. It's not the activity. But in the final analysis, it is our loyalty to Him whom God has called and the offering up our prayers on His behalf. There's a scripture that goes this way. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet receives a prophet's blessing. I've come to realize the literalness of that. I've seen, it, I've seen those blessings in the life of my father because of his loyalty. I would like those blessings in my life, and I would like to see those blessings in the life of every Latter-day Saint. May I end where I began. God does live. Jesus is the Christ. Joseph Smith is a true prophet, and we are led by a prophet of God today. And he has my loyalty, and he has my love. Because how can I uphold the Lord until I uphold Him? In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
2: My beloved. And wonderful brothers and sisters, I seek an interest in your faith and prayers these few minutes that I stand before you. A few years ago, just before our departure to go to a mission to Belgium, our family went on a, sh- on a vacation. Upon arriving at a motel, our children were out of their clothes and into their swimming suits before we could unload the car. As I passed the swimming pool, a sign struck me forcefully. Do not leave children unattended. Though I had read similar signs and ignored them many times before, I felt compelled to stay and watch my young children. My wife wasn't very happy either. She was unloading the car. (laughs) In minutes, one of my daughters was in deep water and deep trouble and struggling for help. I dove into the pool, clothes and all, and with every energy I had, I reached her just in time. I recognized that frantic and unspoken call for help that day, and I will never forget it. There are basic needs of people that are not always so obvious as this experience. But they are there, and their nearly inaudible voices are there if we can and if we will hear. Signs and silent voices everywhere that say, I feel that I, there is something somewhere that I need that will give me peace, that will comfort and let me know my life has purpose and importance, that I belong. A few years ago, a psychiatrist, Dr. Henry Link, after going through years and years of study and thousands of cases, found, though he had not been a Christian, that the gospel of Jesus Christ was the single greatest influence to make people happier, more successful, and healthier. So impressed was he by what he learned that he became a devout follower of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he wrote a book entitled The Return to Religion. As I've thought about this, I think of the statement of a Savior. By every word that proceeded forth out of the mouth of God, men began to exercise faith in Christ, and thus by faith they did did lay hold upon every good thing. Brothers and sisters, It is this knowledge from heaven contained in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ and our total implicit faith and adherence to it that we meet the basic needs of people. Everyone has a need to belong. A new little puppy at our home barked endlessly the first week because it missed its mother. And when any one of us would pick it up, it felt secure, wanted, that it belonged, and it stopped barking. As a fifth grader years ago, I felt desperately a need to belong, and just being on a baseball team with a uniform created that security, that belonging, for me. The gospel of Jesus Christ can answer this great need for every man, woman, and child upon this earth, every family, every single person. Everyone one who joins his Church immediately belongs, no matter who he is or where he is. There is a brotherhood that goes beyond national and linguistic borders, and and it ties all men together. The truths of the gospel, the brotherhood and the sisterhood of the gospel, and active participation in it satisfies these belongings and can overcome all barriers. I remember a story recounted during World War II when a German Latter-day Saint soldier was struck by an American bullet and lay perilously ill. He told his leader, Please take a white flag and go to the other side and see if there's a Mormon elder who could administer to me. What a bizarre request in a war of two mortal enemies. But seeing his condition and anxious to satisfy what appeared to be his last request, he took the white flag, went across the enemy line, and asked for a Mormon elder. One was found, and he with the German crossed the other enemy line, and he laid his hands upon that brother's head and commanded in the name of the Lord that he remain alive until help could be had. This sense of belonging is fulfilled by the gospel of Jesus Christ, first to our Father in Heaven, and then to our family, which can be an eternal unit, and then to members anywhere upon this earth. A few years ago, a retired couple, of Krugers, moved west to spend their last year's they went by bus and stopped in Provo, Utah, for a while. They had no particular destination in mind, and when they got to Provo, they took a cab and rode around the area. And they liked what they saw and felt. And the very next day, bought a, bought a home there. They came from a large city in the Midwest, and though they had lived in the same home for 42 years, they knew nearly no one. When they moved into our ward area, it wasn't hours until food help, and friendship were offered. They could not believe what was happening. They now belonged to warm, other warm, compassionate beings, beings who truly loved them and brought security, warmth, and the true love of Christ into their lives. They were never the same again. They belonged to a larger family and were truly happier than they had ever been in their lives. The Apostle Paul, himself a convert to Christ, and His truths, found this out personally and belonged not only to the great eternal truths which edified His whole being and changed His life, but also to the body of Christ, the people of the kingdom of God on earth, who loved and served each other with an open heart and spirit because of the love they felt. Listen to His words as He described how it was. Now, therefore... Ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God. Members say they've never been a stranger anywhere they've gone, Italy, Oslo, Mexico City, Portland, or Utah. The, they belong the minute that it was known. They were members of the Church of Jesus Christ. Everyone who lives upon this earth needs this feeling of acceptance and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and His Church bring it about. Even though a member lives alone, he is never alone. He belongs. He contributes. He is never forgotten. Recently in Halton, the mission president was stricken with a massive heart attack and lay near death's door for a while. And though he was an American foreigner, so to speak, he belonged to the household of God and literally thousands of people in Holland and other lands, and the apostles of the Lord knelt and prayed for his life if it was the will of God that he should live. Think of it. And it happens hundreds of times every day upon this earth. He belonged to the family of God, he felt their fasting and prayers and love. And what about his wife? She belonged like she had never known possible. I was there. I was a witness, and there were so many calls from those who belonged to the household of God that she actually became weary. As the president improved and I left, my heart was so full, yes, for the preservation of his life, but also for the privilege of belonging to the gospel of Jesus Christ here upon the earth. In reality, in his Church, we are always home. Home in the things we believe, the standards we hold dear, the spirit we need and help, security, and belonging that is, that is there. That may be why it's so hard for us to leave some of our meetings. As I speak these words, I think of the Elders' Quorum in Geneva, Switzerland, that has undertaken the project of moving all ward members when they re- relocate within the, the ward without any cost. They can't even get away from them in a move. Latter-day Saints everywhere open their hearts, their homes, their purses, their, their lives in service and love to others. And this is not done by constraint, but by the love and joy they feel from God and for each other. Indeed, this is the essence of the gospel of, as the Savior lived and taught it. Remember his words. Be one, and if you are not one, you are not mine. And as much as ye have done it unto the least of my brethren— These, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. The fruit of the Spirit is joy, love, goodness. Everyone who belongs to his Church wants to reach out, not because he is directed in an institutional or organizational way, but he wants to serve, love, aid, succor, care for others with kindness and genuine concern. In humble, selfless ways, each of us can be a light to others, who may secretly or silently be longing or even praying to find that sense of belonging. My brothers and sisters, this type of caring, of nurturing, can never be accomplished by mandate or calendar, but becomes because one has within himself that sense of belonging, feels its power, joy, goodness, and becomes concerned about all of God's children. I remember a few years ago an inactive member of the priesthood who, in a moment of prayer, interview, and invitation to serve felt the love and real concern of his leaders and wept openly for the opportunity to mend his ways and belong to the Spirit and the brotherhood he felt. We belong to these truths and this brotherhood and promises, but also we belong to the organization of the Church of Jesus Christ. We are really needed, and we learn in His service. We grow in compassion, in wisdom, in character, in appreciation and strength. And as we become anxiously engaged in His cause, we become more like Him. We be- begin, if we serve with, with purity of heart and selflessly, to learn the ways of the Lord. We become more responsive to the needs of others. Leaders, let us follow the counsel of Moroni, the prophet. He said, And after these they were received into baptism and were numbered among the people of the Church of Christ. Their names were taken, that they might be remembered and nourished by the good word of Christ. And they did speak one with another concerning the welfare of their souls. Let us reach out to every member that he might belong to the household of God. And members, may we reach out with all the energy and love we have, first to help every member of our family, and then members, every one of them, and finally, everyone, everywhere, so that all might have the great privilege and honor and blessing of belonging to the kingdom of God Of this I testify in his name, Jesus Christ. Amen.
3: Will a man rob God? This must be one of the most pointed questions ever asked in the Holy Scriptures. The implications are that an affirmative answer would mean that those who rob God will be cursed by God and burned as stubble at the Lord's second coming. This query was made of ancient Israel through the prophet Malachi, but didn't apply only to ancient Israel. It quite obviously applied to the Nephites and Lamanites on this continent too. For the resurrected Lord repeated it to them when he visited them in about 34 A.D., I presume that modern Israel is also included in the same injunction. For sure, the Lord used almost the same words when he warned of the burning that would precede his second coming, and tithing seems to be the critical judgment criterion. And on the other hand, those who do pay their tithing, give the Lord his tenth, are promised the windows of heaven will be open to them, and their blessings will exceed their ability to receive. Further, The Lord will rebuke the devourer for their sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of their ground. This is a blessing of great magnitude. Obedience to the commandments of the Lord includes the important commandment of tithing and brings many blessings. We do not know always how the Lord will bless us. For example, possibly the following experience, which is common to most of us, might serve to illustrate. Have you ever been following a slowpoke car who's doddering along with a driver looking at everything along the way? And you know if he doesn't speed up, you're never gonna get through on that green light. But then he does speed up just enough to get through on the yellow light and you have to stop. This has a great tendency to test the patience. Sometimes we even start thinking rather derogatorily about him as he drives away. <laughs> However, It just may be that the Lord is protecting us from an accident two miles down the road because we stopped at that light even though we did it reluctantly. If you entertain these kind of thoughts, it may have a tendency to uh, make you thankful rather than uh, angry or irate. And this has a a great uh, benefit to your digestion. I had this principle very vividly impressed on me One day, a long time ago, I was living back in Virginia at the time, and one beautiful fall day, I drove out into the country to pick up some walnuts. There were 16 stop signs between my home and the very, very heavily wooded lane where I turned in to get those walnuts. I stopped 15 times. The last stop sign was way out in the country. I could see in both directions. There were no other cars in sight. I thought to myself, why should I stop? Stop signs are to protect people. But I'm the only one around. So why stop? So I didn't. I wasn't speeding. I just went through at the speed limit. When I reached the heavily wooded lane, I found I couldn't see around the corner. It's that way back there in Virginia. So I slowed down and turned in. Just as I did, there was another car coming out the lane, and because we couldn't see each other, we ran together at about five miles per hour. It wasn't a hard impact, and the cars weren't severely damaged. As I recall, it only cost me about $168 to put my grill and headlights back in. (laughs) Now, that accident had to be perfectly timed. Of course, if I had stopped at the last stop sign, it would never have happened. I said, Lord, I get the message. You didn't have to go this far, but I do understand. (laughs) In fact, I stopped 16 times on the way home with the front of my car beat up. It does seem that the Lord requires obedience in order for us to receive his blessings, which include rebuking the devourer. There is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundation of this world upon which all blessings are predicated. When we receive a blessing from the Lord, it's because of obedience to that law upon which it's predicated. This could reach even to a stop sign, too, I suppose. Let no man break the law of the land, says the Lord. He that keepeth the commandments of God hath no need to break the law of the land. Malachi continues. Neither shall your vines cast her fruit before the time in the field. We will avoid waste. And all nations shall call you blessed, for ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. It is a fact that we even look better when we pay tithing. There's a blessing that comes into the heart of the tithe payer, that even reflects in his countenance many times. Then the Lord seems to lament somewhat. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord, yet ye say, what have we spoken so much against thee? When did we ever say anything against the Lord? The Lord answers, ye have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinances, that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. Did you ever look at the boat in the driveway of your next door non-member neighbor and think, now he doesn't pay tithing or perhaps, or perhaps attend to church on Sunday. He gets to watch the Super Bowl, the World Series, and so forth on Sunday. He doesn't seem to do any things I have to do, and he seems to be getting along as well as I am, maybe even better than I am. Did you ever have any such thoughts? Well, if so, I would imagine that's what the Lord is referring to in these passages. Then the Lord drops a bombshell. He says, quote, Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, like we're doing now. Did you ever notice that those that love the Lord are always talking to each other, one meeting after another? And the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him that feared the Lord and thought upon his name. Ah, the light breaks. There is a record kept. One group is receiving their reward now; the other is laying it up in heaven. And out of the books which are written and shall be written, shall the dead be judged? Then the Lord gives His word, which He cannot break. For surely when you do what I say, I, the Lord, am bound. And here is the Lord's promise. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I will make up my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Surely it is very difficult not to be partial to your own son who's working for you, if he does a good job. I presume there's nothing wrong in feeling that way about your own son. The Lord seems to think not. The Lord continues. Then shall you return and discern between the righteous and the wicked between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. This will be quite easy to tell by looking at the record. Now comes the crux of the whole matter of tithing. For behold, the day cometh, saith the Lord, that shall burns an oven, and all the proud and all they that do wickedly shall be as stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch." In other words, those who pay tithing will have roots and branches at the last day, and those who do not will have neither roots nor branches. Now, what are our roots? Alex Haley wrote a book about roots. Obviously, roots are our ancestors. And what are our branches? They are our children. Then those who walk in holiness before the Lord, which includes a payment of tithing, will have an eternal family at the last day. And those who do not pay tithing will have none. Tithing is necessary in order to receive the blessings of the temple. If a man were to keep all the Lord's commandments with exception of tithing, he could still never be married for time and all eternity in the temple. Thus would have neither roots nor branches at the last day. Then this becomes really serious. Since there is no exaltation without our family, as we think about it, we know this is true. Tithing, then, is one of the bedrock foundation principles of exaltation. As it turns out, when a man pays his tithing, the Lord opens the windows of heaven and revukes the devourer so it doesn't cost him anything, but really puts him far more ahead than he ever could have been if he had not paid it. It is a principle of great promise and brings great and eternal joy and happiness. Then who can afford not to give the Lord his tent? Surely neither you nor I, which witness I bear. For surely the Lord God has spoken it, and the words of King Benjamin he never doth vary from that which he has said. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.
4: William Shakespeare was insightful when he wrote All the World's a Stage, and all the men and women merely players. Let me set the stage for a drama that is not fiction, but is reality. The drama is founded upon certain facts. It is a fact that God lives. It is a fact that Jesus Christ was and is the divine being. It is a fact that the Father and the Son appeared to Joseph Smith in the sacred grove. It is a fact that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. It is a fact that God revealed his will through his prophets in biblical days, and that he does so today. The script for this drama was written before the world began. The script writer has revealed clues about future scenes to individuals who have shared them with all who would listen. For example, Twenty-six hundred years ago, one of the important characters in the drama was shown some scenes of what shall be in the latter days. Daniel the prophet was shown the interpretation of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream from which he related, and in the days of these kings, referring to the latter-day scenes, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. The scenes relating to these clues are now on stage front center. At 14 and a half years of age, Joseph Smith went into the woods and prayed to our Heavenly Father, wanting to know which of all the churches was true. There appeared before him... God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ. The Father said, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Then Jesus Christ told that 14-year-old boy that the true Church of God was not on the earth and that he had been selected to be an instrument in the hands of God in restoring the Church of Jesus Christ and the true principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the scenes following, the God of heaven set up a kingdom about which Daniel the prophet said, Shall never be destroyed. Joseph Smith permitted manuscript pages of the translation of the Book of Mormon to fall into the hands of others, and they were lost. This was displeasing to the Lord, who said to him, The works and the designs and the purposes of God cannot be frustrated neither can they come to naught. Remember that it is not the work of God that is frustrated, but the work of men. Behold, thou art Joseph, and thou wast chosen to do the work of the Lord. But because of transgression, if thou art not aware, thou wilt fall. Had Joseph not measured up, the Lord would have made a change in the cast by appointing another to take his place. But he did measure up as attested by further revelations from God, which commended him for his faithfulness. The Lord said that this kingdom, which would be established in the latter days, shall never be destroyed. We needn't question whether this church that God has set up is going to fail. It will not, for God has so decreed. Daniel further prophesied that the kingdom shall not be left to other people. We cannot join any ecumenical movement, for if we do so, we will be required to compromise principles. We cannot do that, for the Lord has established the principles upon which his church is built, and we have no right to change them. Eighteen months after the church was organized and following heavenly visitations, during which the authority to act in the name of God was given to Joseph Smith, the Lord declared that the keys of the kingdom of God are committed unto man on the earth, and that the kingdom shall roll forth until it has filled the whole earth. Clues to other scenes in the drama have been given to other prophets, such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, John the Revelator, as well as others from biblical history, and Nephi, Alma, Helaman, Mormon, Moroni, and others from Book of Mormon history. The star of the cast is Jesus Christ, the Savior of mankind. Many events in his life were the fulfillment of scenes previously shown to former day prophets. Tomorrow we commemorate the most important scenes of all, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who suffered and died to atone for the sins of men and women. The number of people in the cast is unlimited. If we have desires to serve God, the Lord said, Ye are called to the work. To pass the screen test, one must repent, be baptized, and keep God's commandments. Anyone is welcome to participate. For the prophet Nephi said, He inviteth them all to come unto Him and partake of His goodness. And He denieth none that come unto Him, black and white, bond and free, male and female. And He remembereth the heathen, for all are alike unto God, both Jew and Gentile. The acceptance of the gospel of Jesus Christ is affected by attitude. William James, a famous author and psychologist, wrote, The greatest discovery of my age is that men can change their circumstances by changing the attitude of their minds. In the book of Proverbs we read, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Henry David Thoreau sustained that concept when he said, Man becomes what he thinks about all day long. We have our agency. It is a decision of each of us as to the character we play in this drama, as to what kind of a person we are or will become. When President David O. McKay was a young missionary in Scotland, he was homesick, discouraged, and low in spirit. As he walked down the street with his companion, he noticed an inscription chiseled in a stone lintel of an unfinished building which read, Whate'er thou art, act well thy part. From that moment, he began to act the part of a good missionary and became a great one. This was a learning experience that helped him, helped him in numerous important callings he received later in life. If we want to be a person of integrity, we act as if we have that integrity, and we will be a person of integrity. If we want to be a person of charity and love, act as if we have that characteristic and we will be that person. The Savior alluded to this principle when he asked, What manner of men ought ye to be? And then answered his own question, Even as I am. We should strive to become like him by acting as he would act. Then we become more godlike. God does not select the type of life we live. We make that selection by what we think. If you want to play the part, just act the part. What role are you playing now? Are you a valiant supporter? Are you a half hearted member lacking conviction? Are you a bystander? or are you one who fights against the kingdom of God? There is a reward for valiancy in this drama of life. The Savior said, And you shall have eternal life, which gift is the greatest of all the gifts of God. It is difficult to conceive of eternal life being a place of joy and happiness without those we love in this life. Based upon our valiance, Our future will include our wife or husband, our children, our parents—yes, our posterity as well as our progenitors. What can I do for my children to help them qualify for eternal life? Several years ago, the missionary department made a professional survey to determine what happens to return missionaries. The survey, survey included those missionaries who had returned from one to ten years previous and was claimed to be accurate within 3%. It disclosed that their faithfulness was most exemplary and praiseworthy. It was a revealing report that was much more favorable than one would expect or even hope for. A few weeks ago, I visited a stake made up of young married families. I asked the priesthood leaders how many of them had filled a mission. I was surprised when every man raised his hand. The next week, I visited a more mature stake, which was one of the outstanding stakes of the church, and asked the same question. Every man in the meeting but two raised his hand. The conclusion not that every man has to be returned missionary to be a priesthood leader, but that those who fulfill an honorable mission develop an understanding of the gospel and a self-discipline that results in dedication and commitment to what they know to be true. We should organize our families, our family plans to result in a mission for our sons and temple marriage for our sons and daughters. Planning missions for our sons might begin at birth when we start their own missionary saving program, which will assist significantly in their being financially, morally, physically, and mentally prepared when they reach mission age. We should, above all else, teach our children to pray and to walk uprightly before the Lord. What can I do for my progenitors to help them qualify for eternal life? I can help my parents and grandparents to understand the gospel, to uh, be baptized and to receive the saving ordinances in the temple of God I can make certain that my deceased parents grandparents great grandparents and as far back as I can go in my genealogical research have received in person or vicariously the temple ordinances necessary for them to gain eternal life by doing these things for our posterity and for our progenitors a forever family can be established, resulting in a dynasty of righteous lives that will bring joy and happiness in this world and eternal life in the world to come, even immortal glory. The final scene of this great drama is near at hand. The kingdom of God is going forth preparatory to the second coming of Christ, when the curtain will fall and the Savior will say to the valiant, as expressed by the Apostle Matthew. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord, and thus the kingdom of God will continue forever through the eternities to come. As the prophet Daniel said, and it shall stand forever with you and me having received judgment and reward according to the role to which we have been faithful in this life, to which I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.